Hello, Lincoln, and welcome to KZUM News. I'm your host, Casey Welsh. I won't tell you the weather because we're not live today. This edition of KZUM News was pre-recorded last night due to all of our contributors, including me, having prior engagements at this hour. That won't stop us from bringing you your community's news, though, so let's dive right into the headlines. A public forum was held yesterday at Lincoln North Star High School for the city's Middle Eastern, North African, and South Asian population. Taken together, this Muslim-majority group of demographics can be called Manasa. that's M-E-N-A-S-A, for Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. Members of the Lincoln Public Schools Board and the Lincoln City Council were in attendance to reach out to members of the Manasseh community, a swiftly growing Lincoln demographic. The event was held in the interest of helping the Manasseh community better integrate themselves with the broader Lincoln community and explaining to them what services are available to them and what the role of the school board and city government is in their lives to hopefully make their time in Lincoln more pleasant. School board member Kathy Danick represented LPS, while council people Larry and Gaylor Baird and Benny Shoby represented Lincoln City Government. The panel was asked several specific questions about education, public safety, and economic opportunity, with all answers translated live into Arabic for non-English speakers. Topics discussed included increased parental involvement, the role of police and public resource officers in schools, and who Manasseh community members should contact in case of emergencies or concerns. A topic of particular interest to the Manasseh community involved LPS schools' year schedules in relation to Muslim holidays and whether or not Muslim students would be allowed to be absent from school during them. LPS board member Kathy Danick urged Manasseh community members to send a volunteer to the LPS calendar committee, admitting her ignorance on the topic of Muslim holidays. Quote, we don't know what we don't know. We have a responsibility to learn from all our citizens. End quote, she said to the assembled crowd of nearly 50 people. If you or someone you know is a Manassa community member in need of assistance or information, you can call the LPS District Office at 402-436-1000. That's 402-436-1000. And now on to our features for the week. Several Lincoln families and individuals traveled to Omaha last Friday to stand protest at the offices of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. The group opposes the continued existence of ICE and the Trump administration's policy of separating immigrant children from their families after being detained at the U.S.-Mexico border. I travel to Omaha to observe the protests and ask questions of the demonstrators. I present my report here and now. A crowd of around 20 people gathered Friday in the parking lot of the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services Field Office in Omaha to protest the existence of U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, for ICE, and the Trump administration's policy of separating children from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border and shipping them to detention facilities around the country. Dozens of individuals and their families traveled from Lincoln to take part in the protest, which involved holding public space in front of the USCIS facility at 1717 Avenue HE in Omaha, which contains an ICE field office. Nebraska families have organized this event in protest of the policies of the Department of Homeland Security, Customs and Border Protection, and Immigration and Customs Enforcement of detaining, separating, and incarcerating migrant families and asylum seekers entering the United States. You're hearing the voice of Jason F., one of the organizers of this protest. Due process is not enough. We demand that all people currently held in ICE, federal, state, and local facilities for the acts of entering the U.S. or seeking asylum be released immediately. We demand that all separated migrant families be reunited, and we demand that all deported family members of minors currently in the U.S. be reunited in the U.S. 
we're asking employees and contractors working for and with the DHS and ICE to please withhold all material support from the agencies on good conscience with sympathy and empathy to all fellow humans. And we are calling for the immediate closure of the migrant concentration camps for minors operated by ICE, Southwest Key, and other contractors. We call on Governor Ricketts to evict all ICE employees and contractors lending material and technological support to ICE's operations from the Cornhusker State effective immediately. We strive for a world where migration is recognized with dignity and respect, where no person is legal and where families can remain as they should be together. The protest drew a variety of people from many different backgrounds to stand in the summer's heat in the mostly empty parking lot outside the USCIS building. Some people brought their children, using the presence of united families to add weight to the group's demands for migrant family reunification. Young and old were in attendance. Some of the protesters brought instruments and blew playful melodies on clarinet and melodica. A portable speaker blared foreign dance music as children kicked a soccer ball, blew bubbles, hula hooped, painted faces, and chalked the sidewalks. Demonstrators held signs bearing their demands that ICE be abolished. ICE is a terrorist organization that is ripping communities apart. Um, this is the voice of Nikki, a protester who, like most in attendance, declined to give her last name. And it's just not, it's not right, and I don't want to be, a part. I want, I want to know that I'm not okay with this. Nebraska contains no known detention facilities for minors separated from their families at the U.S.-Mexico border, though ICE is active in the state. ICE raids are not uncommon in meatpacking plants and other migrant labor-heavy facilities in cities such as Grand Island and Fremont. Still, accusations of terrorism are hard to make stick, especially to office staff and field workers, as were present in the USCIS building. I asked Nikki to clarify what she meant. I believe that ICE agents are misdirected with their intentions. Um, I can't really fathom uh, why anyone would participate in this kind of uh, terror, really. Uh, when you think about like what the purpose of ICE is. So I believe that it's a it's almost like they're treating people that are coming to this country to like be safe, they're treating them as scapegoats and just really um, I can't I can't think of a good reason for I can't think I don't know. I just feel like their their main mission is to um, dismantle any kind of immigration and it's uh, it's sad. Long term I believe it supports uh, white supremacy and I know that's kind of radical but I don't I don't see I don't see a reason for it other than supporting hate and just kind of like making sure that people aren't coming together. The existence of ICE can be traced back to its foundation as an outgrowth of the Department of Homeland Security in 2003 in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. The federal department consists of Homeland Security Investigations, or HSI, and the Enforcement and Removal Operations, or ERO. Between these two subdivisions, ICE is charged with enforcing more than 400 federal statutes within the U.S. It also maintains attaches at several key U.S. diplomatic missions abroad. The agency is tasked with identifying and eliminating border, economic, transportation, and infrastructure security vulnerabilities, according to its federal mandate. It employs more than 20,000 people at more than 400 offices in the U.S. and 46 other countries. All enforcement activities of ICE are done in response to perceived threats to national security of the United States. Activities of this nature have included detaining immigrant families in government facilities since the presidency of George W. Bush. Immigration raids, detentions, and deportations accelerated to record proportions under the presidency of Barack Obama. Under the the 
Trump administration, it became official immigration policy to separate children from their families after detention at the U.S.-Mexico border and to house minors in federal detention facilities without any contact or knowledge of their family's whereabouts, often several states away and with minimal accountability. Friday's protest at Omaha's USCIS facility was a joyful, family-friendly affair. Tigers and dinosaurs were playfully painted on faces of children and adults alike. The sound of child laughter joined the music as kids and adults danced and chatted peacefully despite the oppressive concrete heat. Inside the USCIS building was a completely different atmosphere. Air conditioners hummed aggressively, giving the lobby of the federal building an intense chill in contrast to the summer's heat outside. There was a tangible tension in the air as a wall of at least six local and federal police officers flanked the security checkpoint to get into the building. The federal security workers at the desk were on full alert and not answering any questions at all about ICE or even the function of the building itself. A question as to whether the building had been open that day was referred through several different desks in the building before being referred to an office in San Francisco. A question for comment on what ICE thought of the protest in front of the Omaha building was referred by a local CIS employee to an ICE press contact in St. Paul, Minnesota, who never responded. The protesters outside the building were concerned, even angry, but the event was held with an expression of palpable joy. Inside the building, there was only fear and loathing for this small public group of citizens and their children. I just want to show support for the families that are separated and um, I guess on a bigger picture kind of put the pressure on organizations and people who are complicit in everything that's been going on um, just in a peaceful way. So This final voice is that of Lauren Dale, an immigration protest organizer KZUM News has interviewed in the past who also brought her young son. Bringing my son kind of helps keep the family peaceful vibe going with it too. He's probably old enough to understand some, but He's just out here to have a good time with other families. He's not trying to protest today, so. There's obviously people who care, and I know that we came up from Lincoln, so I know more people from Lincoln probably would have liked to be here, but I think it's really calm, and it seems like just a good environment. I haven't seen any anybody come out yet, have you? What do you think that is? I don't know. Do you, I guess I can see some people inside. Um, Hopefully they'll come out at some point and maybe we can have an opportunity to talk to them. I, I would just like to sort of encourage them to reconsider what they're doing and the role that they're playing. Um, I don't want to fight with them. I want to be on their side. We all need to work together. But just making those one-on-one -on -one connections makes it easier to get things done. Reporting from Omaha for KZUM News, I'm Casey Welsh. That was my report from Omaha on the Lincoln family's protest at the ICE field office in Nebraska. We now turn to a different but no less controversial topic, guns. An increasingly divided America seems to have split into mutually irreconcilable camps regarding gun control and safety. Party politics and political ideology separate even close family members, and discussions and debates about guns often descend into ineffectual shouting matches that only serve to deepen the divide. Monty Stokes, event coordinator at Indigo Bridge Bookstore, hoped to change that and brought together a group of three ideologically diverse individuals to attempt a rational discussion of gun safety topics. Not gun control, not gun rights, but gun safety, a topic he figured we can all agree on. He recruited local author Nils McConnell, Nebraskans Against Gun Violence Vice President Melanie Vaccaro, and Thunder Alley Indoor Shooting Range co-owner Cruz Lauer to ask and answer questions in a public forum on the topic of gun safety. A small crowd was in attendance, but they had several very in-depth questions. What followed was nearly two hours of civil discussion and debate on the issue of gun safety. KZUM News presents a small portion of that debate here and now. I'm Nils McConnell. Uh, 
as he mentioned, I wrote this book. Um, as far as gun safety, I'm very much in favor of gun safety. As far as gun control, I think that uh, we need the laws that we have are actually, I think we need to enforce them properly to find out if they're sufficient or not. Um, and we can get more into that later, but that's where that's where I stand. Can I just interject for just one second? We'll do the quick uh, check. 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 No? no? Not getting to you, Dennis? No. Okay. Sorry. I want to move the battery. So my name is Melody Vaccaro, and I am on one of the founding members of Nebraskans Against Gun Violence. And I might be the dissenting opinion on the panel. We'll see. Uh, I have been studying the laws of Nebraska very closely. I work in the legislature a lot and the city council, and I know where city ordinances are. Um, and I got into this issue several years ago. I was really shaken by a story in Grand Island of a nine-year-old boy that was in crisis. His family was known to the police. His family was known to teachers, to social workers. And they asked the parents to uh, remove guns. They asked them to lock up knives. They did neither. That nine-year-old boy, he killed his four-year-old brother. Um, and there were six guns laying around that home. And I, I, feel, I feel it in my bones. Um, had we have had a more sane response to guns and children, both of those children would be better today. Um, but actually one is dead and one will have to live with that scar forever, the rest of his life. And that um, is really distressing to me and so distressing that I helped found an organization so that we can do a better job protecting um, people who are vulnerable in our communities. So. I'm Cruz Lauer. Um, I'm a co-owner of Thunder Alley Indoor Shooting Range here in Lincoln. Um, and really, gun safety to me is kind of, it's one of those things that's educating everybody. You know, making sure you're properly, you know, taking the steps in order to prevent things from happening. You know, safe storage, safe handling, safe practices involving it, not just for adults, but making sure, you know, you're having it involved with children, you know, making sure, you know, they're too young, making sure they're away from you know, it's really, it's a big thing that a lot of people overlook, and even as a business, we've seen some, and we're trying to really take a step, and, you know, make sure people are educated about, you know, getting something that's a little bit more effective in storing, you know, keeping them out of the reach of people, you know, making sure people that shouldn't have them don't have them, and everything, so that's really a big thing, I think, with gun safety. Well, and since uh, Cruz brought it up, um, he brought up keeping guns out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Uh, most of the mass shootings that you've uh, heard about recently, the person who had the gun should not have had the gun. If our current laws had been followed, that person would not have been able to get the gun. And the, the when they do a background check for someone who's buying a gun, there's actually three databases that they uh, that they check. And um, it's the NCIC. I, for at the moment what that stands for, but it's a system of three databases. Two of them are criminal and one of them is mental health. And almost all of them are not kept up to date. Not everything is, is put in them the way it's supposed to be. Um, and a lot of it goes back to the 90s when uh, 
when, when the laws were put into effect, the local law enforcement argued that they shouldn't have to update those databases because that was doing the federal government's job for them. And so local law enforcement does not have a requirement to update those databases, whether it's the mental health database or the criminal database. Doctors who have a concern about a patient do not have to update that, that, those databases. And as long as they don't have to do that, they don't do it, and then people can can get guns when they shouldn't have them. And that's that's a real big flaw I found too. Is the NICS system, it's a great system, but yeah, it's not updated, and it's actually shown in recent years that if it would have been updated properly, certain you know instances shootings could have been prevented. You know, one of the big ones I always look back to is Texas, the church shooting. It was not reported via that. His, I believe it was dishonorably discharged from the military. It was not reported to the NICS system. He was still able to pass the background check, get the rifle. When he it would have been reported, likelihood he wouldn't have had. So there is that flaw. And more, I would like to see more of a requirement on just implementing them actually reporting things like that because you know it is just one little issue we have where we have all these great resources and great tools. We just aren't funneling them into the same channel to help prevent more things. So I have a question for Melody. It, it's, what did you think would have prevented, since they were instructed to, they, since they couldn't obey the authority, what would have prevented that, that child's death in your mind? So for that particular story, um, well, first, let me just the Nixon, absolutely, that back, we need better records in those systems and agencies should be held accountable for the records they control. But we also do need to broaden that. Um, so the big Charleston shooting where a whole Bible study was lost in one moment, um, they went through the background check system and because people who sell guns only have to wait three days and then it's at their discretion if they want to complete the sale, they hadn't gotten a response back to the system and they completed the sale. Um, but that person shouldn't have been able to buy a firearm he purchased. So um, that three-day period, I mean, in my personal opinion, that is baloney. You should wait for a response um, because things like that can happen. Um, but in response to your question, yeah, so right now in the state of Nebraska, we don't have any sort of legal mechanism to require parents or anyone um, to do the right thing in a moment like that. So if you have a child who's in social services and social services comes to the home and they look around and they're like, hey, there's six guns that are unlocked in this home, there's nothing they can do about that other than say like, hey, you know, um, if you have some sort of safe storage, um, either a state law or a municipal ordinance, you can then follow that and say, hey, you know what? This is the law, you have to lock these up. Um, so you think that our laws, if we would require legally, do you want to try the mic? Do you want to try the mic? Sure. Uh, I would, can take the mic. If, if we would require them the um, safe to be stored when there's a household with children, that would be a, a law that we would implement that you think would help that, obviously help that situation. It would help that situation, and it would also help the situation um, of childhood suicide, where the most, um, I don't want to use the word effective, but that's really awful, but you know, 
it really is when um, a child uses a firearm and usually a handgun to do uh, a suicide attempt, they usually do not live through it. Um, if you require parents to lock up their gun, um, I think we all um, like to believe that people who own guns in the community are responsible and they follow the law, and if that is the law, they'll follow it. Um, so that logically follows through. Um, so. Yeah, I absolutely think it would save children's lives to have an ordinance or a state law like that. Um, one of the leading indicators of gun violence is domestic violence. And I don't know uh, Nebraska's laws. In some states, if, if you just accuse someone of domestic violence, they will take their guns away until that case has reached its resolution. Like I said, I don't know how Nebraska deals with it. I know there's some places where if you are aware of a, an unsafe situation, you can petition the court to have someone go in and address that. Yeah. Um, those are often called red flag laws, where you could say, hey, this is, it's almost like um, when you put somebody in jail but you don't have a guilty conviction because you think the situation is unsafe for the community. So you remove the guns for a temporary period because you think the community might be unsafe till it's sorted out. Uh, we do not have any laws like that in Nebraska. Well, and on something like that, I mean, the benefit is is they do keep track of that, and a lot of like your permits, um, even the forms that we as a dealer have to have a customer fill out when purchasing, it states on there with domestic violence. So they have a question specifically for that. So there is something, but they don't always have like the red flag laws and things like that, but there is something that can be, you know, checked off, whether, you know, it's one of those things on the form, if it's in, they answered yes to it, that's immediate, we pull the gun, we pull the form, thanks, but have a nice day, we can't sell it though. But they do have, you know, that, um, like your permits, if you've had any, you know, domestic violence in your history, they will not issue you a permit. But that would be a conviction, right? You'd have not to be like convicted, and no. that's the, that's the thing is it has to be a conviction, the downside, yeah, we don't have any red, you know, red flags that if you're in the process or anything like that, there's nothing we don't know because, especially as a dealer, we're only limited to the resources we're offered. We can't go diving into a personal background because we don't have the authorization. So we're limited with the NICS system or we have to, like Nebraska, we have a purchase permit and our concealed carry permit that we can use to um, actually sell to. But even then, you know, there can be instances where things are in process, those don't get removed. So there is still, you know, in a sense, a little bit of gray area in how things kind of go that can be, you know, can catch people up. Chris, could you walk us through the, per the, the steps that you have to go through as a dealer when someone buys a gun? So that's great. So for in order for me to sell an individual firearm, there's multiple ways I can go about this. And one is if it's a rifle or shotgun, IA long gun, um, you're looking at, you don't have to have any permits or anything for it, but I do have to run through the NICS system, so it does have to go through the background check. If, you know, and that's a system we plug in information, it gets sent off on the computer, and from there, it's on them for what we get to do. So if we get the proceed, we get to proceed with that sale or that transaction. Um, if we uh, get a delay, then obviously we're delayed and we're into that. Um, essentially into the window of the three-day wait period. So we're stuck into that. 
What sort of information does this system have? I mean, to indicate well, whether or not the, the person should be allowed to purchase we have to input personal information. Yeah. So your typical name, address, we can do the optional social security number. Um, we recommend it because we all know there's so many millions of people in this world or in this country that, you know, for instance, John Smith. There can be a lot of John Smith, so you, and that's what can happen. Things can get delayed because they're, you know, your name may be John Smith, but it might be getting crossed with other John Smiths, criminal histories, things like that to where, you know, and it's a database, we put, that's one of those things we put, you know, address, so there's different linking factors they can use to kind of track it to you, but... but what I'm asking is what information has that system collected about those people that they'll it's, tell you? They, we can't, they won't tell us anything. Um, that system we have, we get that little box. So it'll either say proceed, delay, or processing. We have no access to it. Um, we're not authorized to. That system won't even let us, if we wanted to just do a background check on somebody, we technically can't. They hold us, you know, they'll call us and be like, well, why did you do something like that? So, yeah, they're very restrictive on how we use it. So, you know, we don't get to see the information. All we get to see is, you know, proceed, deny. Um, so you don't even know what kind of information is being collected on those persons that you inquire about? Nope. And that's, that's the downside with that system. But then again, we... We have to abide by what. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that is the little bit, but but um, the NIC system is one of them. You know, once we get the proceed delay, or if it's denied, then we can't do the transaction. That's one process we go about. Um, the next process is a handgun. If you have a handgun, you have to have a permit in the state of Nebraska. So in Lincoln, all around the all around the state, you can get a purchase permit. Um, your sheriff's offices, those will typically issue them, and that's they do their own background check on. That's clear. When you bring that to us, that's good for three years. We can do the sale right away. That's a valid form of, uh, essentially, a valid permit to allow us to conduct the transaction because that's shown you've actually had that background checked up. Um, and that's good even for long guns, rifles. That covers the whole board of those. Um, we actually recommend them with our range, um, just because. With the NIC system, we all know how government databases can kind of, you know, work. Sorry again. Do the purchasers have to demonstrate competence in the safe use of these firearms? There is no safety training mandate um, across board. We, as a business, we always recommend the first-time buyers. We definitely want them to go through a class. So oftentimes, we recommend them go through a basic pistol course, which some of our instructors, myself as well, will put on these basic courses. That way. That shows, you know, we go through every little thing. We cover like a broad spectrum of things in the class. We don't cover everything in great detail because we find the brain can only absorb so much information at one shot. But we do that so we can, so people can learn safe handling, safe operation, the whole basic aspect of it. And the thing is, a lot of people don't do that. But that's one requirement we have at our facilities. We want you either to take that class, or if you are not taking that class. We want you coming in with somebody that is an experienced shooter. That way, you're with somebody that is knowledgeable, or supposed to be knowledgeable on, you know, firearms, proper safety procedures, and everything. That was just a small segment of the Indigo Bridge Forum on Gun Safety. A recording of the full forum can be found at kzum.org/news. It is approximately one hour and forty-nine minutes long, which is extensive, but the discussion was very civil and highly informative. 
it would be well worth your time to listen to even a little more of it. It is available at kzum.org news right now. This has been KZUM News for the Week. Thank you for listening. This edition of the program was pre-recorded, but we should be back to a live broadcast next week with more of your community's news. There is more written and audio content available at kzum.org news, and a podcast of this program is available there, as well as on most popular podcast providers. The program was just added to Spotify Podcast this week. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. We'll be live next Thursday at 6 p.m. We hope you'll join us then. For KZUM News, I'm Casey Welsh. Good luck, Lincoln.